Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Us for what's actually part two of a discussion that we started last week. Um, we've been talking about really the intersection between a Christian worldview and the realm of politics. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that first conversation, I hope you do. Um, you can pause this one right now and go do that or just resolve to go back and listen to it afterwards. But today we're going to continue by unpacking the question, you know, how should a Christian interact with government? particularly when that government does not hold uh, does not uphold Christian values. So, you ready to dive in, Jim? I am. All right. This podcast is actually quite perfect for me because I just wrapped up a, a class where we had a really thought-provoking conversation on the relationship between a Christian and government. And I don't mean to bore anybody, but I was teaching on the monarchical period of the Old Testament and specifically on, on David's really interesting response to Saul when Saul was the king of Israel. And, you know, despite the fact that David had been anointed the future king and that he had done nothing but support the kingdom of Israel, Saul wanted David dead. And yet David, even when he was on the run for his life, he refused to be disloyal to Saul. He cited that Saul was God's anointed king. And that brought up a lot of questions in class regarding how are we to interact with those in positions of leadership? And I think that's a really important topic to unpack because there comes, the, I guess that theme comes up quite a bit all throughout the Bible, and I would say even to, to, to the present. And that's where I want to start because we can often feel that we're living in a unique political situation when maybe we're not. So do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think a good, a good starting point is Jesus and how people were constantly trying to draw him into the politics of his day. And we can extrapolate, I think, a lot of things out from that as we begin. And, of course, the, one of the biggest issues had to do with taxes. Uh, the Jewish people were living under Roman rule, uh, having been conquered by Rome, and they were subject to Rome, which means that they were supposed to pay taxes. Uh, a lot of taxes, <laughs> which they resented. Um, but as a conquered, ruled people, there was nothing they could do. So there was a lot of resentment and political unrest and a lot of hatred toward Rome. There was even a group of people um, known as the Zealots uh, who wanted to attempt a military overthrow of Rome and declare independence and to do it violently. Uh, so there were deep divisions, even among those people, even among the people of Israel themselves. On the one hand, you had those who had made their bed with Rome. Uh, and in return, Rome let them keep their positions of influence. They were largely known as the Herodians, uh, meaning they supported the Roman appointed uh, King Herod and the Herodian family and dynasty. On the other side were the Pharisees and who were very strong nationalists. They hated and resisted Roman rule. Uh, but the leaders of both groups hated Jesus. <laughs> they were unified on that because both sides considered him a threat. So as much as they hated each other politically, the Pharisees and the Herodians got together to try to trap Jesus into taking a political stand that would either get him in trouble with Rome or alienate him from the masses of people who were following him. 
because so much of his teaching threatened them as uh, or exposed their hypocrisy. So here's how they tried to trap him. And people uh, listening might be familiar with this. They they simply said, OK, you know, we know you're honest. We we know that you try to teach the way of God faithfully, truthfully. Uh, you're not, you know, you're impartial and you don't play favorites. So they kind of buttered him up. And then they say, so tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, and that was slick. That was a slick question. I mean, first they try to get him to lower his defenses a little bit through flattery, hoping that'll make him loosen up and lower his guard. But then the question itself is masterful because it's poised in a way where Jesus can't win in their minds. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, then the Herodians will report him to the Roman governor and have him executed, arrested and executed. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, well, then the Pharisees would denounce him to the Jewish people as being disloyal to the nation and being in support of Rome and the occupation. Politically, there was no way to answer this one and come out alive. But Jesus was just a little bit more street smart and savvy than they expected. And so he answered, he says, well, show me one of these Roman coins we're talking about. They handed it to him and he said, whose picture and image, you know, title are stamped on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, well, then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. Uh, so much of that response was just masterful, beginning with the coin itself. On the coin would have been a picture of Caesar, but that's not all. Uh, along with the portrait would have been two inscriptions. On the side of Caesar's portrait would have been an inscription in Latin that read Tiberius Caesar Augustine, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side would have been a portrait of a Roman goddess with the Latin phrase Pontifex Maximus, which simply meant high priest. A portrait and claim Jews would have found deeply offensive. Jesus asked to see the coin as if looking at the pictures, reading the inscriptions. And then by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he did two things at once. He made it clear that the claims on the coin were Caesar's, not God's almost belittling its value. But second, he makes it clear that his mission was not primarily a political one. It was bigger than that. He wasn't kind of there to bring about insurrection, uh, nor was he there to affirm Roman rule. He was above both. Instead, while on this planet, his followers should render to whatever ruler is in power what is due them, while never turning away from their ultimate allegiance to God and his mission. Hmm. Well, can we talk about human government as a divine ordinance? Uh, like, what does that mean exactly? Because it's really hard to see how you know Hitler's regime or even more recent regimes that have been antagonistic toward the Christian God could be the result of divine appointment. Well, let's let the Bible keep speaking and keep pulling from it, uh, this time moving to the writings of the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. Um, after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, uh, the early Christian movement was severely persecuted by the Roman government. So understandably, early Christians were confused as to how best to interact with civic authority and specifically Roman rule. Uh, should they join in a political rebellion, even fight against Rome? Um, well, I brought Romans 13 with me, so let me read that because this is the quintessential passage. Paul says, everyone must submit to governing authorities for all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. 
So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. So you must submit to them, not only to avoid punishment, but also to keep a clear conscience. Pay your taxes, too, for these same reasons. For government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Um, give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. That's Romans 13. Okay, let's, let's stair step through that a little bit. First, we're told that there's no governing authority that has not been established by God. Uh, why? Because there is no authority apart from God. God is the originator. He is the establisher of any and all authority. Whatever authority there is has been given. It has been allowed by God, which is why, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, when Pilate said to Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to free you or crucify you? Jesus corrected him and says, you would have no power over me if we're not given to you from God above. So those who exercise authority on earth do so through the direct delegation of God. As human government, uh, so, so human government is a divine ordinance. And we have to see it and say it as that. And the powers of government that it exercises, powers to either encourage or discourage various behaviors, are powers that have been entrusted to it by God for such things as the discouragement of crime and the encouragement of community virtue. Now that doesn't mean, and you brought this up, that every evil regime that has ever existed was personally appointed by God, from Hitler to Stalin to Mao. No, the idea, and John Stott has written about this, I think, well, is that all human authority is derived from God's authority. God has established the family. He's established the church. He's established the government. He's established authority patterns in all of those. And that's what Paul's writing about. Okay, so let me ask a quick follow-up question. You mentioned before in that example with the, inter um, the the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, when he says, give to Caesars what is, Caesar what is Caesar's. What does that mean exactly in terms of modern day government beyond paying taxes? Like, is there something else that we would owe our government? Well, let's go back to what I read from Romans and let's keep unpacking it. Paul goes on to say that we should obey that authority. And he gives two very compelling reasons why we should. Uh, we need laws upheld. We need judgment and morality. We need order maintained. The world needs to be governed. Uh, we need the broad contours of the law as an ethical system upheld. The restraint and punishment of evil are primary responsibilities of the state. So while it would be wrong for an individual Christian to take revenge, in other words, there is no private right to kill or to take justice into our own hands. It was and is the duty and responsibility of Christians and uh, who had public responsibility, uh, a magistrate, a soldier, a, a police officer, a king, a president, to use discriminate and proportionate force to defend and protect their fellow human beings. But we don't go along simply to avoid punishment or to ensure that people are appropriately punished or Held to order. The second and more important reason is because of conscience, our own personal conscience. 
It's the way to serve and honor God and the authority that he established, uh, which is why in another letter, Paul's first letter to Timothy, uh, he wrote very clearly about this, about, you know, he, he says, look, I want you to pray for all people, intercede on their behalf. And he goes, he's very specific, pray for those in governmental authority, pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live these peaceful, quiet lives that are marked by godliness and dignity. And he said that that is good and pleases uh, our Savior. So not only do we submit to governmental authority, we are to pray for those in governmental authority. And here's what's important to remember, um, to add some oomph to this. When Paul wrote this, it wasn't only about praying for Christian leaders or Christian kings. There weren't any Christian leaders or Christian kings when Paul wrote this. At the time of Paul's writing, Tiberius was gone, and the notorious Roman emperor Nero was the one in power. Uh, so when Paul was writing what he just said to Timothy, Nero was who he was saying to pray for. Nero was a nasty piece of work, if you know anything about him. He had his mother murdered. Anyone who opposed him was put to death. Uh, the Roman historian Suetonius uh, reported that many in Rome believed Nero set the great fire of Rome just to make room uh, for a bigger palace. It burned for six days. It destroyed two-thirds of the entire city. Uh, Nero blamed it on Christians. Uh, and had many seized and tortured and burned alive following its devastation. And he wasn't simply just using them as a scapegoat for the fire. I mean, Suetonius said he hated them. He hated them as a result of their faith. Uh, regardless of the reason, he is known as the first great persecutor of Christians. And while the Bible doesn't contain this information, it was widely circulated in other documents and histories that it was under Nero that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were executed. Uh, he was marked by numerous affairs, uh, numerous marriages, and in the end married a young boy who looked, resembled like one of his former wives. And he had the boy castrated, trying to turn him physically into a woman, and then had him dressed as a woman for the marriage. Uh, this was a man who was not well. His reign, his reign was so brutal, dark, and full of, of debauchery that in the end he was condemned to death as a public enemy, but he committed suicide before he could be arrested. That was who was in charge when Paul wrote to pray for those in authority, no matter who they are or how they treat you. And Paul gives some reasons why. He said, by praying for those in authority, we're, we're praying to lead peaceful lives. And further, if Christians are marked as people who pray for those in authority, they wouldn't be seen as insurrectionists, uh, thus allowing them to practice their faith instead of being outlawed, which was critical for Paul. And then Paul brings up a second reason why we should pray for everyone. It reminds us of our mission uh, to seek and to save the lost. And in Paul's mind, that meant everybody, that God wanted all people to come to him, even Nero and others like him. So pray for whoever is in charge, not only so that you may lead a peaceful life with the freedom to pursue your faith, but that whoever's in authority would come to know and experience the love of Christ. Mm. Now, submission to authority, it's always been resisted by some, but it feels like we're living in a time when all forms of submission are being resisted and really on the basis of individual freedom, or I guess underneath that banner. Do you sense that posture with regards to Christians and government too? Very much so. 
Mm. Um, you know, we've talked a great deal in this podcast about how individual freedom and autonomy has become the 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 dominant value of, of our of our day. The call to submit almost by itself has become code for resistance. Like I will not, you know, okay, you're asking me to submit. doesn't even matter what it is too. It's all, it's automatically my God-given right and responsibility to resist it. Even when it would be appropriate for the Christian to submit, it's as if submission itself has become an evil, which is so ironic biblically for Christians to hold because biblically submission is one of the greatest values. Mm-hmm. Um, in many situations, and of course, in relationship to God, it's a cardinal virtue. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's a, it's ironic but that, that that's taken uh, place in our world. So what if we do find ourselves in a position in which our government asks us to do something that would go against God's moral will for us? Like, What does submission look like in that case? Well, you sure would want to make sure we're talking about God's moral will and not just what you don't want to do or you don't like. And That's that got, has gotten really muddied in recent years. But mm-hmm. the early Christian movement was obviously faced with what you just described uh, and came to a conclusion that is captured for us in the book of Acts, which is the book chronicling the history of the early church. And here's what happened. Uh, the religious leaders had just succeeded in having Jesus arrested, put on trial and killed. Uh, the problem was that he rose from the dead, kind of was a fly in the ointment for them, validating everything he said about who he was. That unleashed the Christian movement and the early church, uh, who, having witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus and then witnessed his resurrection, were uh, kind of motivated to spread the word. So they would go to the temple and they would tell everyone about Jesus. So the problem the religious leaders thought they solved was only made worse by what they had done. So they powered up again and had the leaders of the early church arrested. Well, that didn't work because when they did, God sent an angel uh, to the jail and let them out, uh, telling them to go back to the temple and keep telling people about Jesus. So they did. So they arrested them again. And of course, what happened is well known to people who have read the book of Acts, Uh, The captain went with the temple guards and arrested the apostles. They brought the apostles before the high council where the high priest confronted them. And they said, essentially, didn't we tell you to not talk about this Jesus again and to teach in this man's name? And uh, instead, you filled all of Jerusalem with this false teaching about him. And you want to make us responsible for his death, like somehow we did that. And so they said, stop it. Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than human authority. Here's where the early church and the Christian movement drew a line and always has since. If the decree of a civil authority uh, goes against the commands of God, then specifically you're being told to do something that would make you disobey God, which is different than laws allowing the disobeying of God or laws or decisions that simply in and of themselves dishonor or disobey God. But if you are told to do something uh, by governmental authority, then that would make you disobey. Uh, And then you're not bound to submit to governing authority in that situation. The same is true if you're forbidden to do something that you must to honor God, then you are not bound. I, I mentioned John Stott earlier. And his reflections on this, I I thought he put it well. He says, if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, 
and I mean in relation to us personally, then it is our duty to resist. Then, as we just read, we must obey God rather than human authority. For then the government is actually going beyond the authority delegated to them by God and trespassing on territory that is not theirs to trespass. They have violated what they were entrusted to uphold. Um, that's the actual meaning of civil disobedience. The actual meaning of civil disobedience is to disobey a particular human law because it is contrary to God's law. Uh, you see this all through the biblical narrative. I mean, if you're familiar with, with many of its stories, you'll remember that when Pharaoh ordered uh, the Hebrew midwives to kill the newborn boys, they disobeyed. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when ordered by Nebuchadnezzar to worship his golden image, disobeyed. When Daniel was ordered not to pray at all, he disobeyed. Uh, when the Sanhedrin banned preaching in the name of Jesus, the apostles disobeyed. And none of these people were condemned by the scriptures. They were lifted up as heroes of the scriptures. So the Christ follower stands within something of a, of a, of a, of a tension politically. Uh, our basic call is to submit to governing authorities. So while people can misuse political authority, political authority itself is God-ordained and is to be respected and submitted to. But when that authority causes us to choose between submission to that authority or submission to God, we go with God every time. Um, you know, as First Peter gives a, a great balance when it says submit yourselves to every, you know, authority, um, whether the king or the supreme authority and such and governors, and he walks through all those things. Um, he says, but if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief, you know, somebody who's gone against that authority. Uh, if you suffer as a Christian, it should be because you were standing up for Christ, not because you did something wrong against the authorities. Mm. Well, last week we kind of started off this whole conversation by talking about how Christians might approach, you know, these topics of, of politics and um, especially yeah, on divisive, um, on divisive issues, but like in a winsome way and productive way. And so I think I want to just bring this entire kind of two week conversation to a close by kind of circling back to that, especially in light of what you just talked about in terms of submission being viewed as a weakness. Like, could a Christian's submission to government ever be construed as a good thing or something that could draw people in a way to God? Well, first, let's go back to what you you mentioned. Christians can differ on can differ on policy points and and legislative maneuvers and strategies, but but not on the key values that make up the Christian faith. I mean, we can talk about how to serve the poor, but we're called to serve the poor. Uh, we can talk about how best to preserve the sanctity of human life, but we're called to preserve the sanctity of human life. We can talk about how best to bring about social justice, but we're called to bring about social justice. And so we can talk about how best to be salt and light in relation to sexual morality, but we're called to be salt and light in relation to sexual morality. So, you know, as we tried to talk about last time, be political, but as Christians first and, you know, political second. But to your to your thing about uh, something that would draw people to God, I mean, I think so. I know it's still a bit raw for people, but, but think of COVID. Um, on one side, you had those who say that restrictions on gathering, uh, such as for worship services, not only violated our religious freedom, but violated the command of God. They say that we're called to worship uh, publicly as a gathered community of faith and to tell us we can't. That's a moment where we have to say we must obey God rather than human authority. Then on the other side, though, were those 
who did not feel this was an issue related to the freedom of religion or being told to do something we have to do as Christians, or I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, being told not to do something that we have to do as Christians, or being told to do something that we cannot do as Christians. It was simply a collective call in the face of a health crisis to try to control a pandemic. So instead of being forced to disobey God, uh, they considered it being asked to love our neighbor and not cause the disease to spread and kill more widely than it already had. So we had two sets of Christians, both agreeing we should submit to governing authority, I think, both agreeing we should pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, uh, both agreeing that when it comes to obeying God or that governing authority, we choose obeying God. Yet when applied to the COVID restrictions, they disagreed on that, on that application. But what was not often explored, and now we're, I'm going to your question, was how the unchurched felt about that inter-Christian debate. They were very much upset with those churches who met publicly and very much appreciated those churches who did not. It came out in not just anecdotal stuff, but polling and all kinds of things. Now, before anybody gets angry and wants to resurrect the COVID culture wars, <laughs> I was, I'm simply answering the question as you phrased it, I'm, I'm just going at it in light of evangelism, mm. the way you phrased the question. Our experience here at MEC was that our decision to submit to governing authorities during that time was helpful in regard to our unchurched neighbors. They appreciated it. Um, it, it kept relational doors open. Uh, we didn't see the restrictions as infringing on our religious freedom. Uh, while we longed to gather together as much as anybody uh, publicly, we didn't see the request not to, at least in terms of large gatherings, a mandate to disobey God. Yes, we're called to gather together, but that wasn't being forbidden, just a temporary adjustment to the nature and size of our gatherings for the sake of the health and well-being of others. We had full freedom to gather online, continue to proclaim the full message of Christ, to gather physically in ways that honored safety protocols, and so for us, as we weighed that, we felt this is what's strategic to the mission going forward and why we made that decision. And in hindsight for us, again, I'm not trying to reopen those culture wars. Uh, we're, we, we're glad that we did. Well, we don't normally take two weeks to tackle one topic, but I hope for those of you listening, you felt why this was a worthwhile um, endeavor to do that. So thank you, Jim, for um, all the preparation you put into this as always, but especially on, yeah, what can what can be a really volatile subject. So hopefully this gives us a lot to think about um, and really just a lot to reflect on personally and you know with, with the posture of our, with our hearts and really what our end game is um, as Christians and how we can collaborate. So thank you for that. Thank you guys for listening. And yeah, as always, we hope you'll tune in again next week.